HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. HRN is food radio supported by you. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This is Capri Cafaro, host of Eat Your Heartland Out. This week's episode is all about cookbooks that celebrate the flavors and culture of the Midwest. Paul Farabach joins the show to discuss his new cookbook, Midwestern Food, a chef's guide to the surprising history of a great American cuisine. And we'll also welcome Amy Thielen to chat about her newest cookbook, Company, The Radical Art of Cooking for Others. Amy, we are so happy to have you back on Eat Your Heartland Out. You were one of my first guests, um, if not like the literal first guest I think I had on Eat Your Heartland Out all the way back in the summer of 2020. So welcome back. Oh, thank you. That's such an honor. Well, it's an honor for us. And you are an absolute rock star uh, in so many ways. And, um, you know, you have a, a really fun and interesting book that has come out this year called Company, The Radical Art of Cooking for Others. I don't need to tell you the, the title of your own book. That's um, okay. But, um, <laughs> you can state it for the others. Yes. I will state it for the others. Uh, you know, this is what your third book, right? Mm-hmm. It's your third book, but it's a little bit different than, than your previous ones um, because this one is focused kind of on home entertaining and something that I think a lot of folks, you know, might be intimidated by, right? Because I think, you know, you think about it, oh, it's a dinner party. You have to have the nice china that you got in your like wedding registry and the candles and this and that and, you know, slave in the kitchen for 10 hours and, and then you're ready, um, you know, almost in this kind of, um, you know, 1950s housewife kind of way, right? But that's not what company is about. It To me, it sounds like it's like the total opposite, making home mm-hmm. entertaining um accessible to all. Yeah, absolutely. It's about about making it uh, more of a regular fixture in your life. So it's definitely, I, I didn't want to write anything about how people use, uh, set their table, if they use napkin rings or not, or any of those details of entertaining. I, there's nothing about that in this book. This book is really about, it's a menu cookbook for one thing. Right. So uh, we're talking about full menus, you know, if that's what you need or what you want, you want to see how like all of that stuff comes together. It's about, you know, composing a plate and, and you know, the textures and the flavors and the juices that all run together on that plate in kind of a, kind of a home cooking way. 
but mm-hmm. also in an elevated way too, because that's that's where uh, as home cooks, that's where our creativity comes, right? In composing right. like those flavors and those little mini moments on a plate. But I, that's it's right. really, it's not about um, being a, a rock star or some sort of uh, hero. I have one part that one section heading that's like, we don't need to be heroes here. You know, <laughs> it's about enjoying cooking for others. And I really do get into like recipes and down into the bottom of the pan, you know, like what's happening down here in the saute pan and really just like enjoying doing, making some things. That's what it's about. Yeah. I mean, it really, I think sometimes folks get stressed, myself included. I think we all get a little bit stressed and around the holidays in particular, but if you know, you're going to have guests over all of a sudden it's, you know, you feel like you have to put on a performance. And one of the things I really like about the vibe of company is that it's the opposite. Like I said before, it's the opposite of putting on this performance. It's about authenticity to me and, and, you know, um, sharing that authenticity with the people that you bring around the table um, and you're helping give home cooks those tools. Um, walk us through a little bit. I mean, you don't have to go through the whole table of contents, yeah. but just a little bit about kind of the structure of the book. Yeah. So I really wanted to do a, a menu cookbook and um, there aren't that many menu cookbooks around. I have some on my shelves. There's an Alice Waters book um, that it's a menu cookbook and I've always loved it. Uh, reading how, how do people put together the whole meal? And that was in a restaurant, of course, Chez Panisse. But when you think about entertaining or having people over or cooking for the holidays and family, the big part of your stress is what are you making all together? You know, like not just, I'm going to pull this recipe from here and this one from here, but how do those those moving pieces fit together? And so this book is really to do some, it does some of that work. Um, and I think it, hopefully it'll be a relief to some people to not have to do that. Right. So I've thought it all out and <laughs> thought about like the processes and does this menu work as a whole to, to be made in one day or if it's Thanksgiving, you know, two days. Right. right. Um, but the, basically the, the book walks through, um, it's four big chapters. Uh, the first one is called Saturday night and those are your, your dinner parties that serve, you know, six to eight people. Most of the recipes in the book are going to serve six to eight people, which is mm-hmm. a really standard yield yeah. for most cookbooks. So even though um, there are some bigger parties at the end of the book, most of the book is just kind of a, you know, standard yields. Um, and the second chapter, then we go right into holiday. And these are the holidays that I celebrate with my family here in Minnesota. So um, I actually have two Christmases. And I could have had three because my parents are divorced. You know, I could have had a lot, (laughs) but I kept it to two, um, my family and my husband's family. Um, And then, you know, all kinds of different holidays. And then it goes into a chapter called perennial parties. Those are parties that, that. yeah, I do know, you know, parties that you throw annually that may not be hooked to a holiday. Maybe they're just like, oh, you know, I did a deer hunting menu. I saw that. I and yeah. I, you know, coming from the Midwest, I relate. Yeah. Do you do deer hunting? Do you have that as a holiday? I mean, uh, in your well, home? We, my my cousin's ex husband uh-huh. actually is like Mister Deer Hunter, and so <laughs> yeah. she ended up having to. She had like you know the garage freezer, yeah. and all of the deer and venison, and so all of a sudden she's like 
cooking, you know, the stuff that he hunted. And she was my next door neighbor for a She is yeah. still my next door neighbor. He is not. Um, but uh, but right. so through that, I saw her do a lot of a lot of that cooking. And that's just, you know, um, and I've been out to, to the pheasant hunt in South Dakota, for example. Cool. So I know that, you know, these special times of year yes. do, you know, it's not maybe just a birthday, but, you know, or the 4th of July, but there are these kind of unique annual events and that's why that stood out to me because it is a very special yet annual thing that people do celebrate yeah you get it completely i mean and and deer hunting's a really good menu to talk to talk about actually because i always think of that perennial party as our real thanksgiving in a lot of ways because it's you know it's kind of our friends giving it's right before yeah. thanksgiving we get together with friends and and we feast i mean that's that's a time to eat, 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 eat and sleep and drink. And um, <laughs> it's quite debaucherous. All the good stuff. It is. Um, but that menu, I really reached into um, just my kind of nerdy cooking heart to pull out the things that I really like to make. And, and a lot of that inspiration comes from like old French cookbooks. So, Interesting. Yeah, we're talking about like those earthy sauces that are meat-based mm. and red wine and you know, kind of like muddled and, and marinated and things like that. And then, you know, there's like a squash bake, um, which by the title sounds Love. Midwestern, but it's, you know, there's, there's some nice, there's some nice dishes in that menu um, that I think could go any time of the year. Yeah, no, it's, I mean, it, it sounds like it. I mean, and, and I think that the fact that you, you know, have an entertaining cookbook that doesn't focus on, you know, kind of the Emily Post, you know, manners type of, you know, this is where you put the fork and this is, you know, the tablescape. And these are, the, you know, those are the things that I think kind of stress people out sometimes. I mean, some people enjoy them and love them, certainly. But, you know, it's, you know, it seems to me that, um, you know, so much of what you're trying to do is get people comfortable with, you know, cooking for larger groups. You have, you go up to well past six or eight people, right, in, in this menu cook. Yeah, so the last two chapters are like two big blowout parties. And I really, I did that because, and these parties serve, uh, one serves 15, 15 to 20, even more, 25, you can make it. The last party is, is an Argentinian-style asado, where, oh. now this is quite ambitious cooking, but I know that there are people who are going to want the instructions and how we do this. Um, we've done seven Argentinian asados <laughs> at our house. And, and asado means um, it's like an open air barbecue. So you mm -hmm. dig a pit in your yard, uh, commitment right there. And, right. and you, you take, a, a, you know, welded, uh, oh, I'm trying to say like crosshatch kind of things and you, and yeah. you strap the meat. It's, to like that. A spit. it's like a spit. Thank you. And, and lean it toward the fire and you spritz it with like a, uh, a brine, a garlicky brine, and you sit by it all day. So that that can be scaled up or down as ambitious or as as not. You know, it doesn't have to be. I use the same brine uh, for steaks on the grill, and it's fabulous. You know, um, but that kind of a thing. I I do. I have been asked over the years since my first book came out in the New Midwestern Table to 2013. Um, I get a lot of emails and and. Uh, you know, feedback from readers who say, what am I going to make for, you know, my son's graduation party? What do I make for my 
parent's wedding anniversary. I need something that's going to serve 20 to 25. And so that last chapter with two menus, it's not a huge chapter. It's not the bulk of the book, but it does have those solutions <laughs> for those right? people. And, you know, because those occasions, they do come up and you're like, what Absolutely. do I do? Yeah, no, no question about it. Now, I have to ask, what inspired you? How did you decide that you were going to do this big kind of Argentinian barbecue? Had you seen it someplace or, you know, what gave you yeah. the inspiration? Well, I've heard about it for years, but a really good friend of mine and my husband, Aaron's, um, some family friends, they come every year to visit. They live in upstate New York now. And his brother-in-law was Argentinian. And so he, my friend Chris, he learned how to do this. And so we decided, hey, let's do this thing. We want to dig a pit. We want to weld up, you know, these armatures. And, you know, my husband is a sculptor, as are many of his friends and many of the people who come to these parties. So um, oh, wow. they, could, they could weld those, right? And they enjoyed that kind of a project. And then I like you know, calling my butcher and saying, Hey, do you have a pig? It's my cousins are my cousins are butchers. And so I would make them go down to the, um, to the auction barn and buy it, yeah. <laughs> you know, and they, they would buy me things like, so it's cheap, you know, and there's, there are ways to, um, do these things that aren't so expensive, you know, and I yeah. have a lot of, I have a lot of that, those kinds of tips and that awareness in this book too. But we, we've done seven asados now. Um, it, there's nothing more fun than sitting around barbecuing meat like that slowly. It's great. In, in my head, all I'm thinking about, we have in my area in Ohio, they have a, an annual, one of the volunteer fire departments has this annual ox roast. Um, oh my gosh. It's, it's just, I mean, literally they build a huge pit that's like in the town square and yeah. And yeah. it's just like people line up for these like ox, like roast beef sandwiches and it's on a spit and there it is. And, you know, it's wow. just kind of nuts. Like that's a big animal, Capri. That's a big animal. I've never seen. I've only heard about it. <laughs> crazy. It's I mean, it's one of the coolest things that happen, it happens every year. It's, I think it's been going on yeah. for like 40 years now. I've been to like probably 20 of them because they're always around fourth of july weekend and so they they bring out like everybody goes and because it's just like it's a sight to see you know and there's really nothing like something that's like cooked all day on the spit in a, in a pit in the middle of the town so i know these things they really do happen um and you actually really do them now outside of this last example are there have you done all of these things were they already in your repertoire and you decided to yeah. kind of operationalize them for a cookbook or did you make some up and play with things to fill out some of the you know menus that you had already been using well a little a little bit of both probably but i largely this book comes out of my regular home cooking repertoire. And mm -hmm. it's so funny because when I started thinking about what I want, I was trying to think, what do I do for my next cookbook? And, um, you know, I wrote as a joke to my agent, um, oh, I waste so much time cooking, you know, that I can't get this proposal <laughs> in. And she was like, ha ha. And I just thought about it. And I thought, you know what? I, it is true. I'm spending a lot of time throwing dinner parties for friends. In the summertime, I live in an area where, in northern Minnesota, where it's yeah. pretty remote, where we don't get a lot of visitors during the winter, but during the summer, everybody comes home. And so it's like, Absolutely. you know, week after week. And um, so I started to think I, I should just 
be doing these, you know? And in some sense, two birds with one stone. <laughs> yeah. Like in a, in a weird way, I was thinking, oh, this isn't fancy enough. You know, this is too simple because some of the menus, when you're talking about a menu and a plate, uh, you have like maybe a great, you know, let's say you have this great meat dish or something and, you know, it's like stellar, it's tons of flavor and, and uh, a starchy side. But, you know, some of the vegetables on the plate are going to be kind of simple. Like yeah. with my fried chicken, which is like a double dipped, you know, fried chicken, really great crust. But, you know, and it's cream corn. and But then it's like green beans with butter and garlic, you know, in the summer. There's nothing better. Nothing better, yeah. There are some vegetable recipes and some other recipes in this book that can be very simple. So I really have a range because, you know, you can't, you have to have like a rhythm section on your plate. It can't be all like, you know, Um, and I love that analogy. Yeah. You know how cookbooks now are kind of like always like they're like digital singles in a sense, you know, like this recipe goes viral. Bang. This is big flavor. Wow. And then we just leave, you know, home cooks to kind of pull all the other things together. But this book does have some softer elements too and simpler. Well, and, and, you know, you mentioned earlier about how, um, you know, you thought about how these things come together on the plate. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what kind of elements, you know, some, sometimes things are a little bit more obvious where, you know, you know, things are going to be kind of a cacophony of flavors if you put them on a plate. But how do you kind of decide, aha, this is the perfect bite. This is the perfect textures and colors and bringing those things together. Like, when do you know that that plate has been composed in a way that is going to be, you know, kind of bringing all those flavors, making them all shine, but at the same time, when they come together, they're their own, you know, kind of main event. Yeah. I mean, through trial and error, just by doing it and, mm-hmm. and all of these menus I've made so many times all together, this book, I just, you know, personally tested it a million times. Um, like for instance, the fried chicken menu. So you have fried chicken, and, you know, the creamed corn, it's got a little bit of cream. It's got a little bit of coconut, so it's a little lighter, oh. you know, but still creamy. And I do some grating of the corn, so it's really, it's kind of a looser one. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, cooked greens with that, so good. And they're braised with, like, bacon and tomato and a little, you know, paprika, so they're a little smoky. Mm-hmm. Um, my grandmother's very thinly sliced. Uh, they're like a, it's almost like a pickle. It's a vinegar, like a vinegar cuke, right? Yeah, um, yeah. Somewhere between a, a side dish and a condiment, this pickle lies. You know, <laughs> it's a very Midwestern thing. I was going to say, there's a lot of that sort of like, uh, you know, it's an all of like, you know, there's all these kind of things like, is it a side dish? Is it a condiment? Is it a garnish? We're not sure. Yeah. So that this menu, this plate has a little bit of that, you know, and um, and then the green beans, you know. And if you want dessert after all that, you know, there's dessert. But we haven't talked about dessert. Let's talk about dessert. <laughs> yes. So, yeah. So what, what do you have on offer as part of these, you know, on your menus? What kind of desserts are, are you bringing, um, are you suggesting? Well, I can tell you, I mean, there's a, there's a chocolate cake in this book that is, I'm very proud of. Um, I tested it a, Kazillion times <laughs> it can be made it's it's a it's not flourless but yet it's very dense okay mm. so it's a it's a very traditional French chocolate cake mm-hmm. in that it has just a little bit of flour 
you know? And it also has, I use just like regular semi-sweet grocery store chocolate, but I want it to taste like, oh, you know, one of those 10, 12 or $12 chocolate bars, you know, the ones that have tasting notes that are like coffee. That's like, this is a little bit, this chocolate tastes like, you know, yeah, it's like, it's like the back of a wine bottle, but it's a chocolate bar. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like citrusy and bright and this and that. And so I added like tangerine juice and bourbon and um, some dark sweet spices and all of this to this chocolate cake that has just a little bit of flour. So it's chewy and dense. And then it sits and you kind of press it a little bit. So it's even denser. And then you, uh, pour in the indentation in the top that's like just slightly caved in as it should be a little bit fallen then you pour that you know full of uh chocolate ganache that sets to like a you know a fudge that's sliceable wow and you can make it with buckwheat flour which i think almost tastes almost a little better in a weird way but the the ap regular white flour has more chew so i give both variations but i like that cake and you can make one of them and you can make it a day ahead and you can slice it very thinly because it's rich. Yeah, that, sound, that sounds like it's like, you know, a few bites. It would take me out like <laughs> fantastic. But yeah. like, you know, I, I have like such a like low threshold for super rich. But yeah. I mean, you know, you like it's like you go for that fourth bite because it's going to be so good. And then you're like, oh, man, I feel sick. <laughs> yeah, well, it's it goes down surprisingly light. But, you know, that's the kind of thing. I like to have sweets actually the next day. I like, that's my lunch. I'll be like, what I'm having mm. for lunch today is a piece of chocolate cake with whipped cream. Why not? Hey. <laughs> <laughs> Why not? No, do you talk at all about leftovers? I mean, you know, um, and, and how to use them? Um, not a ton. Although my life, I mean, that's my life. We have leftovers like crazy. I do talk sure. about, about how to make things ahead. Mm-hmm. Um, how to plan your time in that sense. But I also do talk about what you can do with, yeah, with what's left over, what is the next best thing to do and to roll uh, the leftover into, you know? Um, that's, I mean, I live very far from a town or a restaurant, so that's my world. <laughs> do, do you think that that, you know, kind of being out in Northern Minnesota and, um, you know, having to source things, in advance or locally and seasonally, has that informed, you know, how you develop these menus as well? Yeah, I think it informs my cooking, um, you know, because I spent, let's say, I'm from here, I spent 10 years in New York City, and right. I've been back here in Minnesota, northern Minnesota for 15 years. It's changed my cooking so much. Um, in some ways, I am, it's really weird because in the summer, I have access to the most beautiful produce anywhere, you know, orchard fruits, uh, garden stuff. I always have access to great meat from local farms. Mm -hmm. Like those things are very easy for me. Um, Like capers are hard, you know, or Mm, like insult or um, certain definitely imported things can be hard for me to source. And so the rest of the year, nine months of the year when we're not, you know, seven months of the year when nothing's growing in the garden, I... I cook out of the regular grocery store and, you know, from a town that's not that big. Right. So, but we have a co-op, you know, there's like a natural co-op. People around here really care about food. And I think that's a misconception about the Midwest, like a judgment, like, oh, people just eat out of whatever. No, I think, you know, if somebody's driving, you know, 25 miles to go get the best chickens, you know, they care. 
I care about food. We're driving right. all over to try to get things and, you know, oh, I have too many cabbages. Will you bring this to so-and-so? You know, there's a lot of that. And it's a beautiful thing. Totally. And, you know, you hit the nail on the head. It's one of our first conversations that we had, mm-hmm. you know, about how you define Midwestern food and how, you know, sort of the Midwestern palate and what Midwestern foodways are have been somewhat, you know, uh, stereotyped in a way that has created some created some misconceptions. And, you know, I, I can understand why there's a lot of association with industrial food in the Midwest, partially well, because, yeah. of, you know, many of the manufacturers and obviously, you know, the quote-unquote breadbasket of America and all these things that, yeah. you know, sure are true, but there's mm-hmm. so much more to the Midwestern food story. And I, that's why I love the work that you do because, you know, you, you really do capture those contours in a, in a very genuine way. Um, and then you get to share them with, with everybody else by putting out books, which is amazing. Yeah. Thanks. I mean, you think about Minnesota and Minneapolis and Archer, you know, uh, General Mills, Betty Crocker, you know, they really did. There's a lot of industrial food, but at the same time, I also think about like the incredible ad campaign that was going on to convert people to buy it. You know, and it took a lot of persuasion and there are still are people like my grandmother was to, to the end, she just did not trust things that were made in in factories, you know, Mm -hmm. I mean, she had certain things she liked, you know, certain canned things, but, and she was from the fifties, but there were, there was a distrust of, of that. Like it was secondary to that, your own knowledge in your family. You know, right. like we knew how to make things. We knew how to grow, th- grow things. And, and you know how to can things, things too. Uh, I never Often really times. canned with her, but she did. Yeah. Right. Yeah. My mom was like, oh, I'm not canning, which, you know, that's great. <laughs> so, I, well, I think there, there's a huge gap there. I think that there has the, a lot of this, whether it's gardening or canning, um, you know, locally sourcing the slow food movement, all of these kind of catch catchy things that are, that are out. I think that a lot of it really did skip some of the boomers and yeah. has, you know, kind of come up through Gen X millennials and, and, and on down the mm-hmm. line where, you know, I, for whatever reason, and we see this, I think in a lot of things, even, even with people that have like, you know, uh, decided that they're not going to speak their native tongue at home, that like, we're speaking English. And then all of a sudden, you know, the grandkids and on were like, no, we want to go back and we want to learn, you know, about our heritage mm-hmm. and our, and you know, the language. And so I think that there is this growing appreciation for ways in which, you know, things were done the old fashioned way, but I think that there's a, an appreciation for that value there. Oh, absolutely. But also, you know, it takes time. And the yeah. reason that people did that was because they didn't have money. And, right. and, and, but then that's where those arts come out of, right? Those, those beautiful skills, those rich skills. And it's, it's just, it's, it's kind of wild how it goes back and forth. I, I know we could talk for hours about that. Just that yeah. topic, I think. Well, the, the microwave does not create any skills. <laughs> no. Is <laughs> what we've learned is that, you know, single serving microwave deals are not going to create, you know, um, you know, incredible skills and, you know, robust culture to pass on from one no. generation to the next. <laughs> no. And that's why, you know, like my recipes, the methods get longer and longer um, because I just it's really about describing how things look, feel, mm-hmm. smell, taste, the texture, you know. Like those things are, there's just so much to know, you know, and like yeah. my son, people are like, oh, do you teach your son how to cook? Does he have a knife and do, I'm like, not really, but he watches me, 
you know? Right. And that's all he needs to do. I never really picked up a knife too much with my mom, but I watched her. And I went to the store with her and I learned which lemons were the ones to buy and which <laughs> lettuces was the ones to buy. And all oh, these yes. things, there's so much, you know? That's right. And, and you know, uh, kids are sponges and they, are. they learn by observation. And I, I just find it really interesting what you were saying just about, you know, how you're describing these these methods in these really detailed manners, because there is so much in recipes that, you know, seems so, um, I don't even know how to put it, just not just methodical, but very sterile, right? It's a half cup of this and yeah. three quarter tablespoon of that and this and that. And like, okay, well, that's great. You can follow a recipe to the T, but something is off still. You're like, I don't know what it is, but it's just off. Yeah, and then, you know, it's making it, making it your own. And mm-hmm. so it is about trying to find those those taste memories and those smells and textures and all of that. Well, you know, recipe writing has become standardized in the past, you know, mm-hmm. 10, 20, 30 years. True. And so- you know, if you write a recipe and then you put it, you know, into a, you submit for a magazine or I, you know, they put it in their, what they quote style. Right. Um, and my editor, I love her. She's like, yeah, we're not doing, I'm like, I don't want to do that. I want to write my own voice. And so I didn't have to do the standardization because I would much rather put that visual clue, that cue, that, um, what it should look and feel like and everything before the time, the number. I think that there's too much reliance on numbers. And when we get to that place where we're like, it's exactly five to eight minutes at 350, you know, it, what it does is it makes us question our intuition Mm. because it's a machine. It's an oven. It doesn't necessarily, mine is not necessarily exactly like yours. I was just going to say, you know, I mean, and it could be a gas stove versus an electric Mm -hmm. stove versus an induction stove. There is, you know, there's the inconsistencies and and Mm -hmm. the different types of of pots or pans, you know. Well, that makes a huge difference. A huge difference, right? You know, as far as Mm -hmm. what, you know, how it's conducting the heat and how it's holding onto the heat. All of those things um, can play a huge role in Mm -hmm. with the final product. So I love that. Like, you don't want a a recipe to harsh your vibe when it comes to intuition. (laughs) Yes, your intuition is everything. Like, that's what we're getting into is that flow and trusting ourselves to say, I know this isn't right. I'm going to do this, you know? So my recipes just go longer and longer because I have, of course, I have all the numbers and I have all of the, you know, the, uh, what we're supposed to have. But I also have a lot of, you know, description because I really think that that's the way to go. You know, a professional chef, I worked in kitchens for 10 years. You don't even know what temperature the oven's at, you know? It's like, is that a hot oven? Is it a really hot oven? Is it a somewhat hot oven? And, you know, I got a wood cook stove a few years ago um, because I wanted to cook like my grandmother had. And That's awesome. It's the same kind of thing. It's like, is it hot? Is it warm? Is it, you know? And you have to like throw sticks of wood into, you know, it's, there's no, I could never make a cookbook from that. There is no cookbook to be made. <laughs> it's ridiculous. You know, you really go by intuition with that. Well, look, and if you look at, you know, the old recipes, like I actually, during the pandemic was going through a lot of like historic cookbooks. So there was like the mm-hmm. suffrage cook, the, the, the uh, suffragette cookbook essentially that mm-hmm. had a bunch of recipes that were, uh, you know, uh, contributed by women all across the United States and, in the effort to raise money for, you know, the, the women's suffrage movement. Anyway, yeah, you go through right. that and there are, you know, obviously they're not at 350 degrees because they're not, you know, cooking in an oven. The the units of measurement are different. 
um, you know, it's, you really had to improvise. And so if you were looking at a recipe from, you know, the 19th century or previous, or even, you know, early, early 20th century, you're not going to get this kind of reliance on numbers, as you were saying. No, not at all. They're very short because they presume, they assume that everybody knows how to do things. And, you know, we don't, they also probably, things didn't turn out as well, though, for that reason. So there are good things about recipes that are more detailed today. Um, mm -hmm. But I, I don't know, I think there is a line where you start to question your intuition. I think there's just, there's a lot of pride in, in being able to, to know when something's mm. done, you know? Absolutely. That's and a lot, and a lot of pride, I think, in sharing that mm -hmm. um, and sharing that joy with others as you would, you know, if you're, you know, having people over. Yeah. I mean, I want everybody to make all these recipes their own and I don't even care if you give me credit, you know, like oh. <laughs> that was my grandmother. That's how they did it. You know, they, yeah. somebody would make something, they'd rewrite it um, in their own hand on an index card and it was theirs. That's it. You know, there's no copyright on a recipe, you know? Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, I love, I love how you approach all of this and I love how you've, you've approached um, you know, making home entertaining accessible. If people want to grab this book company, mm -hmm. um, where can they find it? Pretty much anywhere books are sold <laughs> right now. It's, it's really, it's um, been released very widely and um, it's all over, you know, but you can go to my website or you can find it on Amazon. I love bookshop.org. One of my new favorite places. Bookshop.org is awesome. Yep. Yes, they give money to independent bookstores. I love my local independent bookstore uh, in Park Rapids, Minnesota. If you contact them, I can personalize a copy. I'll walk down there and they'll pop it in the That's mail. That's awesome. What's, yeah. what's the name of that, uh, what's that, the name of that shop? Called, it's called Beagle and Wolf Books and Bindery. And you can call Jen or Sally. <laughs> um, I love it. Yes, but all over, you know, I, uh, you can find me on the internet. You can find the book on the internet. Uh, also, anthropology.com is selling the book as well. That's right. They, they do some really great uh, collaborations with, um, you know, home entertaining and that sort of thing. That's just great. It has been so fun, as always, to talk with you, Amy. And I yes, know that our listeners so are going to be happy to hear from you again as well. Pick up a copy of Company. Uh, Amy, don't be a stranger. We'll, be, we'll definitely have you back again soon. Capri, that was a great conversation. Thank you so much for having me on. This is Eat Your Heartland Out with me, Capri Cafaro. After the break, I'll welcome another Midwestern food rock star. Paul Farabach is up next. Paul, welcome. Thanks for having me, Capri. Absolutely. Uh, it is my pleasure because, you know, from what I know of you, I think you and I share a lot of the um, the same mission when it comes to, um, you know, I think bringing uh, some education around Midwestern food to the rest of the country. And you are a Midwestern native uh, grow, growing up in southern Indiana. How did your upbringing and, uh, you know, coming from the Midwest uh, inform your path into the culinary world? Well, I grew up in a very rural part of Indiana. I mean, Indiana is a largely rural state, but in a town and county where uh, there was a lot of old line farms 
uh, when I was growing up, people still had uh, diversified farms where there were pigs in the yard and a chicken coop. And uh, they'd also have dairy cows uh, and cattle they were raising for meat. And um, food was very much uh, part of community life, which I guess you could always say that is true any time of any time of year, any any place that food is part of community life. But there it was food production was mm-hmm. very much a part of community and family life day to day because uh, we were raising our food. Most of the people around us were raising our food. And so it was very seasonal one. And that that's extremely important in, in informing me and how I like to cook and approach food. You eat strawberries in June because that's when you have them. Um, Right. And you eat uh, squirrels in October because that's when the state says you can go out and hunt them. Um, so definitely a very seasonal approach, uh, definitely very fresh ingredients because again, there were kitchen gardens, most people canned at home. Uh, while I was growing up in the seventies, uh, that was changing pretty rapidly. Um, Mm -hmm. a lot of the people who had these old line farms were passing on and their kids didn't want to continue that work and, you know, went into, went into different fields and these farms just gradually were converting to big corn and soybean operations. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, you know, the town was really excited that a a giant uh, corporation at that time, I don't know if it was global yet, but a giant corporation noticed our little town called McDonald's and decided to open a, a restaurant there. And so the, the, the fast food restaurants started to move in, and it was convenient. Um, when, you know, when I taste that stuff now, you know, if you go and eat at a KFC or a McDonald's, I always wonder, you know, how could anybody who grew up eating this real food um, just fall for that so easily? Right. Uh, but but we did. And, you know, so a lot of uh, the inspiration for writing Midwestern food was sort of witnessing that. Um And the continued decline and decay of these old food ways. And as my parents were getting older and aunts and uncles, I wanted to document as much of that as I could. Because that story of of the rural Midwest, uh, people have talked about, you know, the rural South is that story has been told. Um, It continues to be told about the foods that they eat in that culture, uh, the Northeast, every other part of the country, it seems like that story has been told. And the, you know, the preservation of those foodways is considered important in all of these other parts of the country. And that hasn't really took taken hold in the Midwest. And I wanted to kind of get some document work done about it. And that was sort of what started this book. and, And it kind of grew from there as I realized that there's, there's a lot going on around the entire Midwest and these stories that haven't been told or are misunderstood or being mistold, which is even worse than having, mm-hmm. you know, having a wrong story or, you know, some incorrect or blatantly false legend or lore about something is almost worse than not even telling the story because it obscures the real people behind 
the foods that we're eating. So I wanted to, uh, I wanted to get word out about the Midwest and kind of correct the record and start from a set of facts and, and recipes or, or, or facts. And I chose the format of a cookbook because um, recipes tell stories. And I, so I really let, as a, even as a chef, I used almost all of the recipes came from somewhere or someone else because it's their story, not mine. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to let the recipes speak for themselves. But so that's why I chose the, the format of a cookbook. It's some, it's what I'm comfortable with. And I think that it, it, it recipes tell a story in a very powerful way. I couldn't agree with you more, Paul. I mean, you're speaking my language on so many different levels that, you know, food and recipes, they, they have a unique storytelling capability. Um, and that, that the Midwest itself, um, is, you know, by and large, very misunderstood, um, when it comes to, you know, its food ways. And, um, because of that, uh, you know, I think the desire for preservation has really been overlooked, uh, in, or at least obscured, um, and, uh, definitely eclipsed by a, a number of other regional food ways, as you mentioned, the South, Northeast, et cetera. Um, so I, I'm curious to know, how you started, you said, you know, you wanted to kind of try to document, you know, these things. How did you start to embark on this process? What was your methodology? Well, it was really just picking my dad's brain and recording that stuff on, on uh, voice memos on my phone and writing things down later when I got a chance. Um, and my aunt Rita, uh, and mom, and so, you know, to get as many of these stories as I could, um, and also reading just com uh, community cookbooks, which I read mm -hmm. voraciously from different parts of the Midwest, um, and tried to sort of understand what was going on. And, you know, it's always really fascinating to hear dad talk about the farm because dad had a very keen memory about, uh, everything um not mm -hmm. just uh farm life he did he was a, a a school teacher for years um and could read a book and tell you all about it um you know just right after reading it he he just he just would remember things in a phenomenal long-term memory so i could ask him about you know what they did with all the different parts of the pig when they did their annual hog killings you know, wow. how grandpa cured the ham and you know when they smoked it and and you know tell me about the 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 wild cherry wine again and those types of things. So I would record these stories and write them down. And a lot of these actually at the end of the day, didn't make it into the book because, um, and I, and they'll be written and documented somewhere else. I haven't decided where yet. I wanted to make the cookbook as approachable as possible um, because an important part of preserving foodways is, is for people to, uh, eat them and to uh, make the foods. So um, if I set out a bunch of recipes, you know, from uh, a German American hog killing day um, <laughs> where they're making the liver sausage and the things they're doing with the intestines and the head cheese and all of that, it's probably, probably not a lot of people are going to make those things. Um, and we are fortunate understand. in the West, I think at least, at least to, to, to this day, to have little local butcher shops all over the place that are still cooking or that are still making a lot of these recipes for sausages 
um, and cured meats yeah. the same way that they've been making them for generations. So you don't have to kill the hog and process it yourself. You can go to a, a butcher shop probably nearby and get a lot of the same things that, you know, grandpa was doing on his farm. So I'll, I'll, I'll be publishing that stuff in another, in another uh, book at some point. But, you know, like I, I adapted grandpa's wild cherry wine recipe, for instance, was one of them uh, that did make the book. Um, but I had to adapt it from a 55-gallon a, a barrel to something that was a little bit more practical for people right. to do at home. Um, and my grandma's, uh, my grandma's cherry pie or a strawberry custard pie, uh, springerly, like the springerly cookies, all of these things that uh, people used to have you know, at least once a year for generations that maybe aren't as common anymore. Right. But I mean, you know, in the process of putting them out there again, I mean, you you are playing that part of preservation and continuing to have those, you know, those recipes passed down from generation to generation. How did you do the research outside of your own personal experiences, having these conversations with your father and your aunt and family members, but, you know, going into these other parts of the Midwest and capturing the sentiment and the food ways of those areas that maybe you weren't as intimately, you know, uh, familiar with. I mean, I did a lot of travel in the course of writing the book. And, you know, the first thing I would do would, would be to read about the city in advance, um, either through guidebooks or through local interest publications uh, and try to get either through. So I would read about the city in advance, either in guidebooks or uh, in local interest publications, which are pretty easy to find Mm -hmm. um, in almost any town. Um, so even after I, you know, I would tr- like before I went to Cincinnati, I found uh, Dan Wollert's books. Uh, he, you know, he did a, a fantastic book on Cincinnati chili and one on Cincinnati wine, which is a really fascinating history. People don't realize that Cincinnati was the original wine capital of North America. And really the entire California wine industry was seeded by uh, the wine industry that had grown up around um, around Cincinnati. Really fascinating history there. So I was able to do a lot of this reading before I even went to, say, for instance, Cincinnati. Um, but I knew chefs and writers there, uh, Justin Dean and, and Jed Portman particularly, who were able to point me in directions. Uh, Justin Dean, I, I featured in the book because he's doing really cool work on a farm now. Uh, he's no longer a, a, a restaurant chef. God bless him. And um, so, you know, so in, in those instances, I was in almost every city, I was able to uh, pick the brains of of chefs that I'd met at events around the country. Um, Rob Conley in, in uh, St. Louis and, and Kim and Gavin Kaysen in, in, uh, in Minneapolis uh, and so forth. So, it was uh, so there was a, a fair amount of reconnaissance beforehand, but you know you never never um, underestimate the power of sitting at a hotel bar and asking the bartender uh, what they like and what they think is really cool around town. 
Absolutely. I mean, there's no substitute for, uh, you know, suggestions from the locals. And, you know, I noticed in your book, you, you know, you have a number of meet the locals as, you know, part of your different sections throughout the cookbook. You mentioned Rob Connolly is one of them who actually has been a guest on the, on this program previously. How many places did you actually physically go to collect information for this cookbook? Uh, I think it would be hard to count, uh, Cincinnati. Uh, I probably pretty much went through Columbus. I didn't really do justice. Uh, Cleveland, uh, Detroit, uh, obviously Chicago, um, Grand Rapids, uh, Madison, Milwaukee. I didn't really get up to the North Woods. I, you know, this was, I was writing this during COVID. And so mm. these personal profiles, um, I wanted to do a lot more of them. I think I had 12 of them slated. That turned out to be difficult, but also just travel was kind of. Sure. Um, I was I was one of the the, the COVID, pe- the, the people who was really extremely adamant that I never get COVID. And so I was extremely cautious and it inhibited a lot of travel. I never got to the North Woods of Wisconsin or Minnesota, but uh, I did Minneapolis, um, Iowa City, and uh, I didn't get out to Sioux City. Um, and St. Louis was, was maybe one of my favorite trips. I think that's a terribly underrated, Amen. Uh, food. I, I agree. think it's a terribly underrated food town. And of course I'm from Southern Indiana. I've been in, you know, central Illinois and Indiana, the whole state have kind of been my domain for a long, long time. My partner is from, uh, South central Illinois. So we get through Illinois a lot and get through, uh, and get through Indiana all the time. I spent a fair amount of time in Louisville, which I kind of consider a Midwestern city. It's yeah. technically technically on the other side of the border. Um, I get it. That's that's how I feel about Pittsburgh <laughs> and Buffalo. I actually wanted to get to Pittsburgh, and it just and it just didn't happen. And it, it's one of the things that I, nobody's really pointed out yet about the book that um, is I think is you know. M- maybe hard to pick up on was that at the beginning of the book, when I sort of define the Midwest and I look at, you know, the ethnic groups and the, and the topography and, you know, Pittsburgh gets put squarely in the Midwest. Um, it, and Buffalo actually belongs in the Midwest. Those cities have more in common demographically and also historically in terms of their importance Absolutely. as industrial cities um, and existence as part of the Rust Belt um, you know, uh, there's a very common experience between those cities and, say, you know, St. Louis or Cincinnati, um, Milwaukee. And so those cities belong in the Midwest, but I just and they've actually got a lot of really interesting food in, in both Absolutely. of those cities. And I just didn't get there. It's it's uh, you know, it's a it's something that, you know, we grapple with as well. Working with this program is you know, how rigid do we want to go with quote unquote geographic boundaries? And, you know, there are X amount of states that are considered part of the Midwest, but you do have to consider those cultural, you know, uh, affinities. And, you know, I come from Northeastern Ohio and, you know, I'm a short drive from both Buffalo and Pittsburgh. And there is no question that those communities and and so I've included voices from Pittsburgh and from Buffalo, even though, you know, people don't check those boxes as, you know, Western Pennsylvania and upstate New York. And sometimes, and then you have those, that fluidity, when you talk about Louisville, you, we have the fluidity as well of that, that interface with Appalachia 
in this part of the in this neck of the woods too, with Pittsburgh and the and the Three Rivers and the Panhandles of West Virginia, and so you get a little bit of that happening. Um, so there there are you know interesting uh, nuances in trying to define foodways, and they're really not necessarily you know easy to to put in a box, which is you know. Uh, what really struck me about the the way that you approached your cookbook is that it shows, you know, the fact that Midwestern food is not some sort of monolith, which I think is, you know, the common misconception uh, amongst people that may not be from, you know, a community that might be considered in the Midwest that, you know, it isn't, although you do have a chapter or a section on meat and potatoes and state fairs, two things that, you know, state fairs, uh, tailgates and Main Street cafes, definitely things that um, I think folks uh, associate, you know, by and large with the Midwest. But, you know, there's a lot of really interesting stuff in here that touches upon the, the you know, cultural diversity, ethnic diversity. How did you you know, make your short list. And then I want to ask you about some of your recipes in here, but how did you narrow these recipes down to say, okay, these are the ones that are going to make the cut? That's actually a really good question. And it was one that pained me a lot. You know, I, I have a list of recipes that I didn't get in the book uh, just because of space. By the time we got, I was contracted for 90,000 words. By the time I got to a hundred, uh, my editor was like, uh, uh, come on. And uh, then we got to 110 and he's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. And by the time we got to 120, <laughs> it was just like, you stop, you're done. Um, because you also want to put the more pages and the more weight the book is, the the less affordable and approachable it is. Yeah. And so we really had to stop short of what, you know, might've otherwise been, and there can always be and likely will be another volume of Midwestern food that goes into more obscure and more, uh, you know, visiting, you know, the, the little bergs and really kind of getting out of the mainstream of the Midwest. Um, as far as deciding what would go in, I actually had a drig, dri drawn a big sort of, I don't know if I would call it a tree, but I had, you know, I hadn't even really figured out what I wanted the chapters to be or how to approach it. Um, because Midwest, Midwestern food is so much different from, say, Southern food um, or or New England cuisine in that it really developed and became a cuisine concurrently with industrialization. And that's not just the industrialization of, uh, you know, automated manufacturing processes and automobiles, but it was also the industrialization of food um, yeah. and dual income households. So things like mm -hmm. casseroles are obviously very important. They were time savers and they also exploited the new uh, industrial food system in order to feed people inexpensively, nutritiously, and with minimal tax in terms of time yep. on the household. And, you know, we're primarily talking about uh, women who were doing the cooking uh, in, uh, you know, throughout our history. Um, so minimal tax on women in terms of, you know, getting dinner on the table while there were so many other things going on. Uh, so I, I really I started this kind of <clears throat> these big splotches of, you know, these are foods that we eat with our hands. And, you know, these are, you know, foods that we eat while we're snacking. Uh, and these are, you know, definitely like sit down and have dinner kinds of foods. And, you know, these are the the pies and the cakes. And, you know, so I would 
put foods in these and take foods out of them. And as I took foods out of them, I would put them in another list, which I still have that goes, you know, like I said, for probably some sort of volume two. You know, it was really my intuition more than anything else, although I did have some discussion with with certain friends who are really into food um, about whether things like, you know, Western Kentucky or Owensboro barbecue should be included. Um, and that's the mutton barbecue of, of Western Kentucky that you find. Mm-hmm. It's the Ohio River Valley, essentially. Yep. Kind of the Midwest. Um, and ultimately, I left it out. Um, again, that could probably go in some sort of second volume. Um, I, I was really encouraged by everybody to put that in. And at the end of the day, I, I just wanted I had I felt like this book making a lot of the claims I'm making, um, you know, sort of taking fried chicken and saying, hey, the South, this isn't just yours. This is also ours. Um making a lot of the claims that I was making that I had to make this book bullet sort of bulletproof. Yeah. And if I started, you know, tipping over the, what, you know, perceived borders and boundaries, it was definitely better to just stay North of the Ohio river. Yep. No, that makes, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So, I mean, and, and that didn't really inform, I mean, I would have gone to Pittsburgh cause I, I love Pittsburgh. I've been there, you know, a few times, but it's been many years. I just didn't make it. Well, as you said, we got we got we got another volume, right? So you can come back anytime. Yeah, absolutely. The, I mean, this the what I'm seeing here is I'm looking at some of these, and I, I want to kind of ask a little bit about you know some of the actual individual recipes. Um, just as you know, if you're a lay person looking through this, and you know you're trying to find uh, you know a a recipe to make, um, and you see something like watermelon pickles or pink squirrel under, uh, you know, cocktails, or um, I'm going to butcher this, Apfel Clutchen, um, you know, under under breads. And then you see, you know, I noticed some some interesting regional ingredients. You have sorghum, pecan, sticky rolls, and I saw a pawpaw pie further down, um, you know, and then you have things like latkes and, of course, you know, uh, uh, obvious things like chicken and noodles and the bane of my personal existence, Cincinnati ch- chili, Queen City chili, you have it here. Um, you just so many, you know, different types of of uh, food and recipes that give you a sense of, like I said earlier, the the difference, the differences and the complexities of Midwestern foodways. Um, you know, what would you say is maybe the most I don't know, off the wall out of all of these. If you like, I mean, I'm looking at this here, cranberry and bone marrow pudding pie. Now that's a combination. I don't think I would have come up with. Where did this come from? Uh, that actually came from, that was one of the very, very few recipes in the book. That and the paw paw pie are two recipes that uh, are, are pretty much just mine and that I've done at the, re- that I've done at my restaurant, which is ostensibly a Southern restaurant. Um, you know, the paw pie I definitely wanted to include because it is our our largest native fruit. Um, and it was actually during colon- colonization and dur- during settlement, I guess. Um, you know, they would se- they would publish all of these pamphlets and books uh, that that were targeted at Europeans. Mm hmm. Um, to entice them to emigrate to the United States. Um, and 
Um, it's really, you know, it's kind of macabre thinking about it now and because of what was going on concurrently with the treatment of the First Nations here. Absolutely. But, you know, they were really trying to make it sound like such a rich and abundant land, which it was. Um, but but pawpaws were always and, and persimmons actually were were always hyped up in these in these pamphlets and, and books that mm. were published for Europeans. Um, I guess maybe because they were like these strange exotic things that people would be yeah. able to enjoy when they got here. Um, but I, you know, so pawpaw, there just aren't a lot of, there are no traditional recipes. It's, a, it's always been a difficult fruit to cook with. And it's, you know, that's something that I've cracked, um, myself, um, a code that I've cracked, I guess, that I've figured out a few recipes that do work with, with pawpaws. And I wanted to include something so people could get cooking with them. The cranberry and bone marrow pie actually came from uh, an Appalachian cookbook. Um, but it was up in West Virginia, which is mm-hmm. definitely maybe South Tidewater, but actually very close to Ohio. And Absolutely. I was just fascinated by it. Um, a bone marrow custard pie. And, you know, I made it once at the restaurant and I thought, God, this is just too rich. And, you know, taking a, a, a page from my, my grandmother's cooking with that, that strawberry custard pie, which I think is the very first sweet recipe, if I recall. Um, I thought, you know, this, this bone marrow pie could use some sort of fruit. And I used blackberries because that was what was in season at the time. And good wild blackberries have a, a nice sourness to them. And Absolutely. it was just great. You have this really, 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 really rich, unctuous, aromatic bone marrow, um, sort of tempered by the fruit, which in the context of the custard sort of becomes, you know, almost something you you slurp. It's like, I don't know, it's hard to describe, like a creme brulee-like texture. Mm -hmm. Um, Just really good stuff. And so I just decided I wanted to include that recipe um, as a cranberry recipe, because that's maybe my favorite version of it now that I've cooked it with, you know, I've cooked it with rhubarb, I've cooked it with peaches. Um, and so, you know, something to use cranberries, which cranberries are actually native to the Midwest. It's something that yep. I think a lot of people don't, Wisconsin. don't know. Yep. Wisconsin particularly. Um, and, uh, the Midwest probably produces more cranberries at this point than, uh, than New England does. You know, the big ocean uh, ocean spray, the big uh, cranberry concern is from Massachusetts. So, yep. you know, I guess that sort of informs people's picture of that, but it's definitely a Midwestern fruit. And so I wanted to include um, a cranberry dessert because people don't use cranberries enough, uh, uh, for, you know, for again, for one of our native berries. They don't use them enough. And so, yeah, I, I sort of put those two ideas together and came up with that pie. It's funny that I landed on, as I'm just going through this list, landed on two that actually, you know, you, you know, you created. What about ones, you know, you, you know, you, we started this conversation, uh, you're saying that, you know, most of the recipes in, in your book don't come from you because it's not necessarily your story to tell, even though you're a chef, uh, you know, and obviously you're trained in the kitchen. A lot of these recipes come from other sources. What would you say um, is the most unique uh, out of those that, you know, are not necessarily ones that you developed on your own? Oh, sure. Uh, That's actually really easy. 
Um, and it's still, I mean, even to people in Chicago where it used to be a thing are like, it's a what? Um, is the the snoot, the snoot, the the barbecued snoot from St. Louis. And uh, they used to be a thing too on Chicago's South Side. Um, Chicago and St. Louis, as you might imagine, uh, there's just one big highway and used to be a railroad line that went between the two. There's a, a mm-hmm. lot of commonality in the urban cuisines, particularly in the black communities, um, because both of them are also connected deeply to the the Delta region mm-hmm. and New Orleans. Um, so pigs and used to be something in the in Chicago as well on the south side, but you can't find them here anymore. Uh, although in St. Louis, you can still find maybe a dozen places that do them. And it's it's not, as you might think, the, the actual nose of the pig. It's the skin flap from over ah. that goes over the snout. And most people who barbecue them cut the actual, um, you know, the what's the pink patty thing that that's the actual snout, right? That that actually gets cut off. And so you have it's basically this the skin and gristle and fat that gets cut off of the bridge of the pig's snout. And it's, you know, probably about the size, you know, of a, of a washcloth, about half the size of a washcloth, maybe. And size of an eight and a half, by, or, you know, size of an envelope that you might put a letter in. And um, you marinate this in salt water with vinegar and or hot sauce uh, overnight. And then it just gets a really low and slow cook uh, over you know, coals is, is the way to do it. If you're, if you're going to call it barbecue, some people nowadays just do it on a gas grill and it's, it's just not the same, but you know, you can do it with charcoal. You don't need to go and you don't need to burn a fire of hickory wood and then scoop over the coals, like, you know, quote unquote, real barbecue charcoal is actually, you know, this charcoal you buy at the store actually cuts that process out. You're actually just buying the, the, the embers, so um, you can actually barbecue over charcoal. Don't let anybody tell you you have to have wood. Um, but so you over the coals, you cook this this the snoot, and you've constantly turning it. And you know around two hundred fifteen, two hundred twenty five degrees is the best place to keep it. But uh, the, after several hours of just slowly turning these over and over, uh, they gradually cook, render out. Uh, they lose all of their fat uh, and the skin cooks and start, sort of starts to become very tender. But then it, just like a chicharron, because it's dried out also as part of this process, it starts to, to sort of puff up and get really crunchy, crispy. And so it takes several hours, but it's it's like a big chicharron that is just tastes of barbecue. And uh, they're abs- they're just fantastic. Um, but they're really hard to find. I think people are just turned off by the whole idea of a snoot. So in Chicago, you can get the the rib tip and hot link combo is sort of the the thing in the South Side barbecue. In East St. Louis, you can get the rib tip and snoot combo, which is what I would get when I go down there because that's actually an even better combo than the tip and link because. 
the rib tips, if you've ever had them, have this really, yeah, they're cartilaginous, but there's also like the rendered fat in them is really, really creamy. The meat is too mm-hmm. some. It's got this real tactile, textural um, experience that goes with it. There's so many textures uh, involved. And then you take this snoot, which is just crunchy. It's like eating uh, hog, pig rinds. It literally is a pig yeah. rind. It's just when you cooked over a... It's just when you cooked over a coals. And so you have this crispy, crunchy, uh, you know, toothsome meat and slurpy sauce and, you know, everything, the, the cartilaginous tips and all of these textures. It's just a it's just a masterpiece and I think speaks to the ingenuity and brilliance of, you know, of soul food cooks and, and of cooks in dispossessed communities uh, that we have here in the Midwest, uh, how people can be so resourceful with things like pig snoots and the, the tossed ends of, of racks of ribs. No question about it. I mean, I, it's that, that resourcefulness is definitely, I think, a, a, a characteristic in many parts of the Midwest. And I, I also have to say that I so appreciate your, attention to descriptive detail in all of this, um, given the fact that this is radio and it's hard um, sometimes to grasp things that, you know, have those, that tactile aspect. And of course, all of the senses involved in food. So those descriptions were incredibly useful, I think, and definitely are going to drew me in and I'm sure are drawing our listeners in as well. The snoot conversation, though, makes me think that it might not be the most approachable of the recipes in your book. Um, it might not be one, you know, an ingredient that's accessible, accessible to many. So if you were to give a suggestion to, um, you know, a reader of your cookbook who is looking to, uh, for a place to start, some place that might be a low barrier to entry to start to get to know um, the recipes in the book uh, and better understand Midwestern cuisine, where would you tell them to start? Oh, well, Midwesterners love to bake. So I would definitely, and sweets were always, you know, of any community event, the sweets were always the highlight. And, you know, women, whether you're in an inner city church or uh, a country church, uh, and you know, if you have the church bake sale or a church supper where everybody's bringing their desserts, it's almost sort of an unspoken competition mm-hmm. where um, everyone is trying to show off their best. And so, I, I would say a great and very very approachable place to start is with my grandma's um, wild or the strawberry custard pie. It's really easy. You can even start with a store-bought pie shell if you must. Um, And otherwise, it's very, very easy. You can make it with any fruit. It's Again, this time of year, I would make it with with cranberries. We're getting into cranberry season, but it works really well with frozen strawberries. um, And it works really well with frozen blackberries. Those are my two favorite fruits to make it with is strawberries Mm -hmm. or blackberries. Um, that's a really good one to start with. And I would say also, um, you know, for something to snack on, if you have a food processor, make the cold pack cheese, it's really easy. 
and it will dispel all of the myths you have it of being some uh, really sinister industrial <laughs> product because real cold, cold pack cheese is nothing more than two different cheeses blended together without the application of heat. So a good brand of cold pack cheese, um, like Pine River, the original one, I have some of it in my refrigerator here, um, is not, there's nothing in it but cheese and, and a little bit of cream to bind it. Um, it's really easy to make. Uh, the fried cheese curds are really easy to make. Um, if you can get cheese curds, um, yep. which may be hard in certain other parts of the country, but I think they're becoming easier to find. They are. Throughout the Midwest. So, you know, those are... Those are certainly two big ones um, <clears throat> that I think aren't too hard to make. Um, those are some. Those are some good suggestions. Uh, you know, you get you've given us a little bit of sweet and a little bit of savory, um, and um, I think a lot to think about when it comes to what Midwestern cuisine is, where it comes from, how complex it is, how special it is. Um, and, uh, I don't know about you, but I'm going to hold you to the fact that you're going to come out with like another volume of this, because I am certainly not done with, uh, you know, it, the options that are out there when it comes to Midwestern food. And it sounds like you got a whole lot of things that were left on the cutting floor that need a home. So you better come out with another volume. <laughs> That's the plan at this time. That is great, Paul. I am so glad that you had time to, to come join the program. Paul Farabach, the chef and owner of Big Jones in Chicago and the author of Midwestern Food, a chef's guide to the surprising history of a great American cuisine with more than 100 tasty recipes. And obviously there are more than 100, which is why we're going to get another volume. Everybody go check this book out. Paul, thank you for being with us. Thanks for having me, Capri. It was a great time. You've been listening to Eat Your Heartland Out. This episode was produced by me, Capri Cafaro. Our audio engineers are Liam Warner and Armin Spengen. Theme music by Jason Shaw. You can learn more about the show by visiting heritageradionetwork.org backslash Eat Your Heartland Out. Eat Your Heartland Out is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.